0: Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast in our Week in IndyCar series. Coming to you Monday evening, beautiful sun setting in golden Northern California. Hopping on a plane Tuesday morning, flying out to Indianapolis. Going to do a one-day essential big coverage blast as much as we can on racer.com for the Indy Open Test. The one and only scheduled ahead of practice for this year's 500. Then on a flight back home very early Thursday morning. So gonna do something a little different than we normally do for the week in IndyCar. Uh, often go and get ourselves a guest if not two, and we schedule to record and we put that up either late Tuesday, some point in time on Wednesday. Well, I'm traveling Tuesday. everybody is more or less on track Wednesday and I'm then flying home Thursday. So rather than try and get guests knowing that they're in a big time crunch, gonna do things a little bit differently this week. I don't know who our guests going to be. I might be my guest. I might invite myself on. I'm not exactly sure. I'm assuming we'll find somebody. We'll grab somebody at Indianapolis on Wednesday and get some thoughts, maybe so. throw some Q&A at them. We'll have to see. We're going to play it a little bit loose. You might hear I'm still dealing with this Long Beach flu. It's kind of, sort of, almost, mostly gone, but my brain is still farting a little bit, and uh, yeah, I'm still a little bit nasally and congested. So, Apologies yet again for that. Before we get to the Q&A you sent in for me, and there's some fun stuff in there, including something that sure looks like an opening rant on my part, we'll mention that going into the month of May here, going to have the third anniversary of the good old Marshall Pruitt podcast. And thanks to our podcast sponsor, Cooper Tires, they're working on something really cool, an absolutely free couple of giveaways. And then also with our other podcast sponsor, the Justice Brothers, they're working on a third giveaway. So some really cool stuff. The fact that I launched this podcast in May of 2016 at the Indy 500, not a coincidence that the goodies that are coming from the Justice Brothers and from Cooper Tires just happen to be Indy 500 related. I'm really stoked for those bits and pieces. And sorry if I'm being a little bit cryptic, but I think you're going to want them. And hopefully you will be there at the event to receive them for free. Uh, One other quick thing, too, our other partner, TorontoMotorsports.com, gave me the okay to confirm that they are doing a one-day pop-up shop at Indianapolis Motor Speedway on the Saturday, day before the race, at the memorabilia show. They have set up, and they will be setting up a booth there. What's fun about that, and if you visited TorontoMotorsports.com, you'll know that they are huge IndyCar fans all kinds of memorabilia diecast cars and t-shirts and mugs and models and stickers and you name it they've done a bunch of original for the month of may 2018 special t-shirts special stickers the vast majority of them are celebrating indie legends they have asked me not to say who but I can just tell you that if you're like me and you love wearing T-shirts and putting stickers on things that celebrate the past, our heroes of the Speedway, they have done a mighty fine job of coming up with some really, really cool stuff I am confident you will want to have. So that'll be coming Saturday morning, starting Saturday morning, one day only, pop-up shop, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, right behind the pagoda at the memorabilia show usually while the autograph session is taking place. So in some instances, you might be able to buy those T-shirts and run out and get one of the drivers to sign them or maybe one of the legends too. So cool stuff from our pals at TorontoMotorsports.com. Now it's time for me to get into the questions you have sent in. So before I read our first question, mention that I got an email over the weekend from an IndyCar fan and a listener of the podcast. You said, hey, Pruitt! Everyone in the world is weighing in on the Roger Penske, Chip Ganassi, and now Michael Andretti, we want guaranteed spots at the Indy 500 thing. Why haven't you? Why have there been crickets on racer.com? Fair point. Super, super fair point. I don't think there's anything to it. We can drudge up these topics and throw them around, and clearly, it's a great one for debate, but I just don't see any real merit in it becoming a thing. Now, if I'm proven wrong, then I just look at this and say, hey, it's a really fun and cool thing, and no disrespect to those who have written the stories, who have written the opinion pieces about it. I just don't think there's anything here. I just don't foresee this happening. So with that said, pouring a lot of time and effort into an opinion piece and a historical piece, I think it's the proverbial storm in a teacup and nothing more, but we'll find out. So let's go to Zachary Campbell. He says, all right, Marshall, it's the big question. What are your thoughts on locked in entries for the Indy 500? Are you one of the Satan, although you wrote satan loving, that's an interesting, but I believe you meant Satan loving communists who loves locking in cars to the 500. Are you one of those enlightened with the belief that no one should be safe? Although I am not interested in writing about this, I'll happily just share some thoughts here to open the question. Hey, Would you like your entries for the Indy 500 to be guaranteed if you're a full-time entrant? It's a question that ranks right up there with, hey, would you like free money? (laughs) Who's going to say no if this is something that would be offered? I would hope hardcore competitors who were small teams, maybe not full-time entrants, who put in a lot of work, a lot of effort, found some success, found more sponsors, were able to become full-time entrants. I'd hope they would recall that the spirit of competition and nothing being guaranteed is actually the thing that made them better. It's actually made the thing that made them push harder. So what's been really strange for me, having lived through the split, the cart IRL wars, having competed, uh, my first Indy 500 as a team member was 1997, which I believe was the last year of the 25-8 and rule, and the team that I was with, the Little TKM Genoa Indy Lights program, we were one of the eight, or we were one of the teams having to vie for those eight positions. And yeah, maybe that's for another episode, but I can't tell you how much that sucked, knowing that as a rookie team found out at Indianapolis, which we'd never seen before, uh, there were a lot of talented people on that effort, and we were better than at least half of the teams there. And yet, regardless of our talent or capability or aptitude, we're forced to fight for one of the limited numbers of entries made available simply because we were not a locked-in full-time IRL entrant. Uh, It happened to be our debut race, so really hard to be a full-time IRL entrant when it is your first-ever race. What I recall from that... And knowing, having lived through this era, having seen the foibles of this, knowing how much the 25 and 8 rule has been hated, the thing that stands out to me that is really odd, IndyCar's wealthiest and most successful Indy 500 entrants talk about safety. They want a safety net. They want to be safeguarded. They want their investments protected. If I'm thinking of the big three, because those are the big three names that we've heard from so far, Michael Andretti, Chip Ganassi, and Roger Penske, those men have won 27 combined (laughs) Indy 500s. Call it 25% of all the Indy 500s held since 1911. These three men have won. Uh, I even, just out of curiosity, because again, kind of... uh, Former race car engineer, numbers matter to me. If we're going to talk about making a change, there's probably going to need to be some data or some numbers, something to suggest to support the concept. Since the year 2000, which I believe is also the year Colton Herta was born, Andretti, Ganassi, and Penske have won 16 out of the 19 Indy 500s held. It's 84% victory rate by the big three. Protection against who exactly? The rest of the field and their 16% chance of winning? So I do realize there is a vast difference between dominating the Indy 500 as these three men have done with their teams and being at risk of failing to qualify. Again, I realize these are separate things. They're not so different though. The The talent that has allowed those teams to win, again, we'll, I'll just stick with the since 2000 number. The talent on the driving side, engineering side, mechanical side, pit stop, uh, sponsor allocation, financial resources, all those things. Those are the things that created the big three and have also really ensured that missing the show is almost an afterthought. Of course, Michael missed the show eight, nine years ago with Ryan Hunter Ray. They bought their way into the show. Rectify that. I get that. Chip, I can't recall the time when they failed to qualify. Roger failed to qualify in 95, big famous instance. Uh, It was a case of the car not being good enough. I mean, kind of a merit thing, right? Uh, The thing they brought, the decisions they made, weren't good enough to make the show, and they didn't. A merit-based thing, performance-based thing. It just really strikes me as odd that this 84% win rate, wealthiest, most sponsored, most talented, most everything, the big three are wanting guarantees that they won't be put at risk by the have-nots. The haves, not wanting to be bothered or put at risk by the have-nots. It's just really strange to consider this. What would stand out as normal to me is if we heard something from the 16% saying, hey, (laughs) it's impossible to compete against these guys every year. What can you give us? To guarantee we will be in the show because there's no, certainly no guarantee for us. If those guys are worried that whoop our behinds every year, what chance do we have as one offs or part time entrants or whatever we happen to be? I'd expect to hear this from, although I wouldn't really expect to hear it from many of them, a Michael Shank, a Ricardo hunkos a Dale coin uh, run down the list of the smaller entrants who have a a much smaller percentage chance of succeeding and are just getting into the show. Those are the folks, if I was going to hear this guaranteed entry thing, I, I might think I'd hear it from them saying, hey, if we're going to enter the race, we want to guarantee we're going to be there. The fact that the folks who absolutely dominate year in, year out, want guarantees that they won't be put in a bad position, potentially losing out to one of the smaller teams, Uh, the have-nots it's just bizarro concept for me i mentioned michael shank racing so they started off with a one-off entry at the indy 500 came back last year with six races they have mustered the money to do 10 this year michael shank's money is as green as any of the big threes he has an absolute desire to one day become a full-time indycar entrant he and his team they don't have the money to do that right now so should privilege, a guaranteed entry, be based solely on financial fortune? Is the, I mean, that's really what we're talking about here, right? Hey, we're a full-time entry. We've committed to the series full season. Therefore, we believe, to make sure we don't miss the show with any of our entries, any of our big sponsors aren't put at risk, might leave the sport, uh, might hurt us if they were to leave, etc., we believe that by committing full season, we should get a reward for that at the Indy 500. If Meyer Shank Racing had the funding to do a full season, they would be a full season entrant. So, do we take a Meyer Shank and say, yeah, sorry, buddy, you only signed up for 10 races? Uh, you don't get a guaranteed entry for the Indy 500. The fact that the teams that can't or are just simply not at that place where they're able to do that should be A already an underdog during the month of May. And then B, given this other holy cow hurdle to hopefully get into who knows what that number is. uh, One of nine spots right now, maybe eight. If the series keeps growing, which Jay Frye, series president, says they think is going to happen, and we have more full-time entries, look, as long as that number at the Speedway is 33 entries... Uh, And what, if we get to, say, 26, 27 full-timers? I mean, we're talking about six spots, two rows to try and fill for the Indy 500 based on who is not a full-time entrant and or who shows up for a one-off. It's just a slippery slope. And I really am glad that I didn't write this because it'd take me a week. So we're talking about guaranteed full-time entries. Well, some of these teams... Some of the, especially the big three teams, all the teams from say the midfield full-timers for sure, automatic entry for sure. Believe all those teams have a tradition of running an extra card, Indy. Shouldn't they get a free entry, right? Andretti sport this year, four full-timers running a fifth for Connor Daly. Love Connor. Shouldn't Connor, I mean, since he's a part of this full-time entrant family, Shouldn't his entry, even though he's a one-off, shouldn't these teams be given a guarantee there? Penske adding Elio Nevis. Great. Ganassi, not running one. But what about Schmidt? They're running a third. What about Carpenter? They're running a third. What about Carlin? They're running a third. If the full-time entrants get automatic entries to the Indy 500, how much longer before... Those entrants start to say, yeah, but you know, every year we run an extra car, those 33 spots are going to be gone very quickly. Absolutely. Without a question, there's going to be the same argument made, hey, the Air Force is sponsoring Connor Daly. Do you really think we can afford to risk them, the Air Force, not making the race? And you can hear these arguments taking place. All of a sudden, you start stacking up these full-time entrants with their extra entries. I mean, are we're at 33 easily, I'd have to imagine. So if we're just talking about the haves wanting to come up with a new and fun way to protect themselves while further uh, disenfranchising and or adding further difficulty for the have-nots, I don't see the big-picture thinking in this. I see the very selfish, small-picture thinking We're big, we have power, we have all the success, we want to make sure there's no chance we could fail, take care of us, meh, rest of you, sorry. I get that. I just also realize that the way things have been working, we often see smaller teams, emerging teams, truly spirited teams ramp up. We also just have some folks that love to come out for the month of May. Hey, Dennis Reinbold, sorry, buddy. No, you've been here forever. No, your family history goes back decades upon decades. Eh, you guys, yeah, we'll see. we got eight spots. Hopefully you can get in. Hey, McLaren Racing. Hey, Fernando Alonso. Hey, buddy. Yeah, we know you want to win the Indy 500. Sorry. McLaren said they're going to do a half season next year, not a full-time season. Sorry, pal. You're uh, You're going to have to hopefully scrape your way in. I just don't get that mindset. Some of you know that I also cover sports car racing. Some very valuable parallels to draw here from the other greatest motor race in the world, the 24 hours of Le Mans. They have been embroiled in a massive bleep storm of late, all based on how they have handled their entry list, for, again, what many consider outside of our borders the world's biggest, most important race. 60 entries, a lot of different classes, but 60 entries. The ACO and FIA put out their call for entries, 60 spots to fill. After they tallied all of the automatic entries that were guaranteed, the guaranteed spots, 47 positions were taken, leaving 13 for non-guaranteed teams to try and make dozens upon dozens of extra entries were filed and it has been an absolute nightmare of folks saying wait a minute how how were we not selected for this and it's a selection process imagine this they actually pre-select the entries that can compete in the race they don't do anything silly like hold an actual qualifying session to determine the 60 fastest cars and then allow them in to compete in the race. So what we have here, because of what they have decided to do, they have said, hey, if you are a full-time entrant for the FIA World Endurance Championship, boom, automatic entry for Le Mans. If you are the champion of this sports car series, you finish in the top three, you do this here, you're in this minor championship and you win this or place there, you get an automatic entry. If you're the top pro-am driver in this series over here, boom, you get an automatic entry. 47 out of the 60 spots, gone, period. They, quote, opened up the entry list. Really? It's just folks trying to funnel in to get one of the remaining 13. And again, the list of folks who are denied, it's brutally long, None of it based on speed or performance, though, or talent or anything else. This entry list process, all subjected to the really arcane whims of this selection committee. What we have here now is truly the joke of international motor racing. Uh, The folks at the ACO and the FIA have privately acknowledged they really need to look at this. Because if you're going to hold something that is recognized as one of the world's two greatest races, yet quality entries can be denied simply because folks have not signed up for full season championships. You can't just simply be on the grid because you are one of the 60 fastest cars. Maybe that's breaking one of the core tenets of sport, the best beating the not best. You strip away that component. Yeah. I, I think you start to violate something that really should not be violated. So this is another thing that we've heard, right? We've heard the, the traditions argument, ah, there are no traditions left at Indianapolis. We should just go to these guaranteed entries nascar does it right charter system how many other sports where you say folks are absolutely guaranteed to be on the grid you go okay i understand that their precedent set elsewhere at le mans 47 of the 60 are given away why shouldn't indy do the same nascar decides that their charter system is the thing cool that works for them we aren't nascar we aren't le mans we do have some traditions that are left why not cherish them why not actually try and preserve some of the few remaining instead of just admit defeat, concede defeat for no particular reason? We're just raising the white flag because saddens me. So I look at Le Mans and say, hey, if you want evidence of an automatic entry system based on full time entry for their most important race, even the organizers there have realized, yeah, OK, we're getting off track a little bit. This is no longer about the best. This is just who signs up for our club. I'd hate to see IndyCar wander down that same path. Throw another thing here. So we spoke about Meyer Schenck, their money being green, as green as everyone else. The fact that they can't do a full-time right now. What about a Ricardo Junkos, who is probably dangling by a thread? He might end up entering two total IndyCar races this year. Who knows? We hope it will be more. Was at Circuit of the Americas with Kyle Kaiser? We're thinking he's going to have Kyle in the car for the Indy 500. Told us that he will be there with one car. Ricardo has invested. He has purchased two complete latest spec, fully updated Chevrolet powered Dilaudi W12s. Has all the refueling equipment, wheel guns, everything, all the infrastructure to run an IndyCar car team. What he doesn't have right now is the budget to do more than a handful of races. So do we put in place a system where someone like Ricardo and his team can die through a guaranteed system, something that puts such an insane amount of pressure on him to perform to try and make one of very few positions in the field? Or do we say, hey, man, it's open competition. 33 spots are open. I don't care how many cars showed up, 35, 36, whatever. You have a fair shot at making the field. If you don't, that's on you. And if your team folds, at least you can say, and we can say to you, you had every opportunity, as every other team did, to try and make the show. And we will hate to see you go, but at least we can't say that we put in place procedures or policy, probably stack the deck against you. So what do you then have if we have this guaranteed rule? Someone like Ricardo, who hasn't been on track in an oval since, what, Indy last year? Probably going to be some desperation. It's probably going to be some setup changes made that are real hit or miss. That driver, if it is Kyle or whomever else, probably going to be some heroics to try and find some speed that they haven't been able to massage that the other teams have. Just saying, uh... I would rather know that Ricardo's team folded because they had a shot and didn't make it than we put in policies that really kind of steered things in that direction. That, to me, if I'm thinking the American dream, yeah, uh, you might might have figured out by now I'm not a huge have-and-have-nots guy. If we are in competition, if we have 36 entries, and we create a system based on speed to determine who can get in. Then that's what we do. Taking care of today, thinking absolutely nothing about tomorrow, thinking absolutely nothing about growing the birds, Hollingers, Bellardi's, Vassar Sullivan's, run on down the list, the Hunkoses, the Meyershanks, the Scuderia courses, the those who are involved in one-offs partial entry or partial seasons co-entries etc cetera, etc cetera. just not sure everyone is truly looking at the big picture here seeing how easily this thing spins out of control and how much damage it does to actually try and safeguard the future of the sport so that those who come in and backfill when name the team decides hey we're done we're shutting down. We're moving to IMSA, or we're just done altogether. Who's there to fall behind when you stack the deck against them? I just don't know if we are truly thinking this all the way through beyond what is best for the haves at the expense of the have-nots. So, Zachary, we're going to pivot here to the second part of your question, which you didn't ask, but I'm going to pretend that you did. It's the why Why is this guaranteed entry thing flaring up all of a sudden? Didn't hear it last year, didn't hear it the year before, and so on. I am absolutely positive it's all related to the core issue I'm hoping that will become the key item that's addressed. I am not convinced that IndyCars, Big 3, and others truly have just out of nowhere decided to abandon their pride in competition and just want a big old comfy security blanket of guaranteed entries. I don't think that just happened immediately out of nowhere and for no particular reason. Completely convinced this whole thing is stemming from IndyCar's change to its qualifying procedures this year. Been conversations held with the series team owners meeting at circuit of the Americas. I've been told is where this was raised and there was not a lot of satisfaction coming out of the answers, not saying the answers were unsatisfactory. I wasn't there just saying I've heard that there were some team owners who weren't super buying in or happy to hear the thoughts from IndyCar about where it's taken its qualifying process. So if you look at the changes for for what we have coming this year, different than last year, have a scenario where we are going to, on Saturday, identify the fastest 30 cars. We are going to, once Saturday is done, we're going to have identified the fastest nine that are going to carry over, to Sunday and compete in a shootout for the poll. Those who qualified 10th through 30th are going to have their positions locked in. And those who were from 31st to what we believe is going to be the 36th and only, or the final entry, those who failed to qualify on Saturday, and it is truly a failure to qualify we now have a system where Saturday, making it into the top 30 is really the only thing teams are focused on. Those who fail to make the top 30 are going to come back on Sunday and what would then be entries 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, and 36, six cars are going to vie for the last three spots on the grid. Those cars are going to get one shot. There's a bit of a safety net in place here that in theory could save some of the bigger teams that are worried about this, where if a name the driver at the big team crashes, blows up a motor and causes all kinds of damage, something significant that does not allow one of the expected top 30 cars to get through. They can come back and try and get into the show in that last row, the the last chance qualifying, the LCQ basically. They can join that group and knowing that they are not in the show due to nothing related to a lack of speed, meaning lack of performance, but actual adversity, a crash or otherwise. They can get lumped in with those who we can assume probably are not in the field yet because of a lack of speed and potentially start, if they're the fastest, I guess, 31st. So we have a couple of concerns here that are very new to this year. So with the system IndyCar has in place on Saturday, they're going to do the usual, guarantee that every entry gets one attempt. After everyone gets an attempt, They are going to go into the okay, and now if you want to go back out and try to improve your time, you can. They're going to do the two qualifying lines routine. Uh, They're going to have the line one. Uh, It's for cars that haven't qualified or have withdrawn their previous qualification times, and keep in mind that everyone's guaranteed one shot. It doesn't mean that necessarily that every single car must go through in order to start this lane process. Uh, Some may opt not to go out at their... Uh, the time that they have drawn, regardless, we have a situation where in theory, IndyCars told the team owners, you're going to have plenty of time on Saturday to do plenty of runs. And so if you're having any issues, you're struggling to get up to speed, you're going to have time and opportunity to get in. Let's just say that there's not a full buy-in on that. And so for many of these team owners, especially the big three, that have been around for decades, whether it's team owners, drivers, you name it. I remember back in the day when qualifying was a couple of weekends, two weekends. I think there was three back in the day as well. But these are folks that remember, man, if you didn't make it in the show, (laughs) it was more or less 100% your fault. And whether adversity was part of it or just lack of speed, you had so many opportunities, multiple cars, engines, you just run, 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 run. Boy, if you're a quality team, you're going to be in unless there's really something wrong. So that releases the true pressure and concern. Not saying it's a cakewalk, but it does dial down the, the fear and the night sweats. What's being presented this year I will absolutely agree with the big three and the others who are calling for guaranteed spots in reaction to this qualifying routine. That, yeah, I'm not seeing that, boy, you can just go, 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 go. I'm not seeing what IndyCar is seeing. Maybe I'm wrong. Part of what IndyCar, why IndyCar hasn't been too vocal about this a uh, call for guaranteed spots is you know they've more or less said hey we have confidence in this new qualifying system we have set up the thing they haven't said which i would stress is the underlying note let's see how it pans out we sure are saying this thing's a bomb and it's gonna bite you and it's the worst thing we haven't even held it yet maybe let's see how it works before we declare it's the root of all evil and we all need guaranteed entries but i can see how team owners would be very concerned and cautious that wow if i'm not in the top 30 on saturday one day <laughs> not the days not the weekends we used to have my first year there uh, boy we should have qualified in the top I believe we would have been sixth or seventh had we completed our first run. Uh, we didn't put enough fuel in the thing and sputtered coming out of turn three or four. And our fourth lab was slow, so we had to try and qualify again. And I forget what happened. I think we blew up the engine maybe. Back then, you only had three qualifying attempts per chassis. We only had one chassis and almost no money. And so the way things worked out, we thought we were going to be a first weekend qualifier. We weren't. We then did have night sweats (laughs) the entire time going into the following weekend. And then we were all set to qualify. And then we blew, I think blew the motor all of a sudden, Sunday, final day of qualifying. We scraped in, I think 30th or whatever in that 25 and eight year. And yeah, it was brutal. But I can tell you at least we had multiple days, two weekends to try and get in, and we did. So I can get why Nandretti, why Ganassi, why Penske, and maybe any others who are in agreement that, hey, man, one day, top 30, or you are in deep doo-doo, or if you have any adversity, you know, something breaks on the car. Uh, You got a tire puncture and the spins, flies, crashes, flames, you name it. We've seen these things happen many, many times. I think the reaction that we're getting from team owners is this is getting to be razor edge thin. You can have almost no problems happen. Or you could be like the Schmidt Peterson Motorsports team last year with James Hinchcliffe. I mean, they made some mistakes too, not just on the speed side, but how they dealt with putting the car in line, not putting it in line. There are some others who wasted time on track when it was running down and et cetera. But I think folks saw what happened last year, thought it was already a little thin margin-wise. Seeing what's been rolled out for 2019, going, Phew, that's even thinner. And now we're getting this guaranteed entry talk. So going to close this topic on what's the thing that needs to be fixed here is it providing guaranteed entries for full-time entrance blah 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 no that's the manifestation that's the symptom being manifest as i see it the issue here is a severe lack of comfort in the new qualifying procedure and the small super tiny margins of error that happen to exist. Whether a team is just off the pace a little bit to their surprise. I mean, the slow teams are going to come out of Friday having a feel that boy, we got work to do. Not many teams that were a rocket top five on Friday show up on Saturday and are struggling to be 34th. But for those that do, and that does happen at from time to time, you're not going to have a lot of time to try and fix things. For those that do have adversity, could be some of these big teams that do have a crash, a blow-up, pick any scenario. Meteor falls out of the sky, hits the thing. Not a lot of time to recover. I think this is the thing that IndyCar will look at, I hope, and say, okay, if this is the thing that's causing team owners to react this way, maybe we need to try and cure what is causing these concerns or minimize them to some degree. Guaranteed entries? It's not the answer. All right, let's rifle through as many questions as I can in about 45 minutes or so because I am needing to get ready to pack and get on a good old aeroplane to Indianapolis. We're going to go with Buddy Campbell. Hey, Buddy. He says, I think I've heard every answer under the sun when it comes to a new engine supplier in 2022 from the announcement at Indy. No one is on the horizon. Let's see. What are the most concrete facts you know right now that you can share? Uh, well, we're looking at 2021, which is the date IndyCar has announced as their intended debut for the 2.4 liter formula. There's nothing I can share with you, buddy. I know that there was a old-timey racing website that posted something, I think, over the weekend, maybe, and they said they heard a rumor that it was BMW. Okay. Uh, I can't really share anything right now, buddy, and I wish I could. I can say that there are some really strong possibilities of what might be happening. So I'm going to leave that intentionally vague. I wish I could. You know that I would absolutely tell you this is the thing that's happening. If I could, now's not the time to do that. Let's see. Howard Bennett asks, any chance you can get a few wise words at Indy with Bob Fernley, who is the team manager for the McLaren IndyCar program? I'm sure I can. Uh, Give me some ideas of what kind of wise words you would like, Howard. I'll definitely be seeing him. So let me know. Uh, let's see. We'll go to Kevin Howard. It says, why did wheel covers in IndyCar and turbofan wheels in sports cars ever disappear? I think we had a couple of things come together, Kevin. On the IndyCar side, I think it was just strictly regulations from a safety standpoint. I'm spitballing a little bit here, but I think it might have been, hey, in a crash, since these are not truly hundred percent built into the wheels but are bolted on this could be an additional item that flies off i wish i hope they come back i really do they look awesome if you think back to the 1988 Penske's that i believe swept the front row in qualifying or something close to that those glorious polished aluminum wheel covers with the little three holes cut into them for lightening uh just looked glorious so when we get to the new chassis in 2022, who knows? And just in terms of aero efficiency, maybe there is something there. Maybe there isn't, though, and that answers the second part of the question of the turbofan wheels in sports cars, the actual ones that stuck out a bit, had uh, inlets, lots of little vanes that drew air into the brakes from the outside of the wheels, Spoken with some folks who told great tales. I really wish I'd captured them for a podcast a decade or so ago. Just talking about how, in the 80s in particular, in IMSA and in Europe too, but definitely in IMSA, maybe even into the late, starting in the late 70s, there are a lot of teams that, while brake cooling technology was not quite a highly refined art, folks are trying to use those wheel covers with the fans built into them to cool their brakes, cool the uprights, just do all their cooling needs. No CFD back then. Uh, There were some folks that spent time in wind tunnels trying to make them work. A lot of folks just went with their gut what they thought would work. Since we also didn't have a lot in the way of data acquisition uh, until mid to late 80s, wasn't necessarily a lot of great information to tell us how effectively they were cooling or if there was effective cooling whatsoever put all that stuff together and yeah heard tales from some folks saying they looked great we think it might have actually hurt (laughs) not totally sure uh of of what's going on here but uh, they looked great so could those wheel covers make a valuable drag reduction impact in indycar uh come 2022 while also helping cooling not detracting from cooling at least but Certainly would not want to be something that diminished the ability to cool the brakes, knowing that these carbon discs and pads uh, certainly use heat uh, to create the entire possibility of super late braking. Yeah, so looks awesome. A little bit of added weight for sure, so that rotating mass isn't something probably most teams would want. Might be another reason that those kind of faded out of uh, popularity. But yeah, I'm with you. Kev, I'd love to see at least it become an idea again. Let's go to Ed Joris. Ed says, From a technical standpoint, how would you make use of a hybrid power plant on an oval? Is there any way of charging the batteries during the race other than perhaps breaking for a pit stop? I think we got into this a couple weeks ago uh, with someone else's question, but happy to go back down it again. The main idea that I've heard. This is this is from Roger Griffiths, who's with Andretti Autosport these days in Formula E, but formerly Honda Performance Development's technical director. Right after the 2012 engine formula hit, he was definitely thinking, hey, you know, we really need to look at hybrid systems going forward. These motors aren't making a ton of power, plus this hybrid thing's becoming a thing. And so his thought was we could, of course, do the traditional battery somewhere beneath the tub beneath the fuel cell and the traditional regenerative type braking the just standard KERS system we see in Formula One we've seen in the FIAWC LMP1s he then said yeah but for the ovals we'd need to think a little bit differently and look at possibly something being driven off the turbocharger something coming off of the uh, shaft there that is spinning at a trillion RPMs and there are systems made off the shelf systems made. I believe Magneti Morelli is one of the leaders there that is just essentially siphoning, uh, the rotational energy coming off of the turbos to spin itself up, replicating what isn't really happening on an oval, which is big breaking moments Could there be something else we think of? You know, we look in sports cars a lot at alternators. And in, not in every case, but in many cases, that will be driven off of the gearbox. Uh, So the alternator will sit back somewhere in there uh, and coming off of one of the drive shafts. uh, You'll just have an extra belt that spins the alternator. Could that be something that is employed on ovals only? Uh, Something that is constantly spinning and, in theory, charging that battery. So not impossible by any means, uh, could be an off the shelf solution and could be some new things that they might consider. Let's go to Salvatore D'Amico, who says four days at long beach still have not met you in person. Oh, well maybe Indy. Sorry, Salvatore. Um, I'm doing one of two things at, uh, a motor racing circuit. I'm either capturing content and producing it or running out and capturing it. Uh, There's not a ton of in-between. So I need to keep doing a better job of that, though. Just being around more more present. um, Doing less. Robin Miller gives me a hard time all the time. So I guess I need to hang out as much as Miller does so I can be seen more. So point taken. Go to, let's see, go to Ed Joris. Ed, you always send in great questions. Thank you. He says, do you think we will see at least demonstration laps of a fuel cell IndyCar in the next five to 10 years at IMS, considering that Honda, GM, and potential third manufacturers appear to be all in on fuel cell technology. Isn't that the quote relevant tech that makes most sense for IndyCar? I don't, Ed. I really don't. Where I believe we're going to go with this next engine formula is something that although we haven't seen it announced or it was not announced when this new formula was brought to life, uh, at least publicly, last year in May, uh, just going into qualifying for the 500, just announced as a straight-up all-motor internal co- combustion engine twin-turbo thing and no hybrid considerations whatsoever. Probably sounding a bit like a broken record, but I've been hammering on Jay Fry for a couple years now, well prior to the formation of these rules, saying, hey, whatever you do, whenever you get there, it's got to have some sort of hybrid component. And not because I believe hybrids are just cool and we need to have them in racing. I don't care for them in racing. In the real world, uh, some of you might know, I live in the same city as Tesla, and so the world's primary tesla plant is five minutes away so (laughs) no big surprise here there's lots of electric vehicles running around they're everywhere and here in the bay area again just uh, hybrid vehicles are very popular also maybe not a big surprise so fully accustomed to those being in the real world seeing them etc just eh. pure electric stuff yeah don't really care for it in motor racing addition of hybrids can be cool in LMP1 hybrid, when that was truly booming, we were talking the motor side, just the pure turbocharged motors from uh, from Audi, from Porsche, from Toyota. Those things made between five, six, maybe seven hundred horsepower, depending upon their uh, build characteristic. They also had, depending on what was what, five six. I I heard as much as possibly 700 horsepower deployed purely through the hybrid system. And other than a dragster and maybe a formula one car, I've never seen anything accelerate like it coming off of a corner, just brutal. So you would get the motor, the actual internal combustion engine spinning up and those little things would do their job initially But where the real holy bleep moment would come is when the full instant on maximum everything torque, you name it, power would hit accelerating out of a corner. And it's just absolute Star Wars light speed type experience. So that's amazing. That I think is just it's beyond awesome. Technical wizardry to behold. Anything less than that, at least. For what appeals to me, it's a token. So if we're talking 100 horsepower, 150 horsepower, 75, I don't know what the number is. It's not that big of a deal, but I think that's what IndyCar has to embrace and go towards, Ed. Just from a marketing standpoint, to engage more manufacturers, to engage more suppliers, to open that world up so that teams can do deals with their own hybrid supplier, or suppliers, true sponsorship, R&D budgets, you name it. So it's not just a case of IndyCar needs to have hybrids so that it's relevant, it's also the business side. And if IndyCar is willing to do that, that's a thing I've been hammering on Jay on for a while now. It's hey, it might not be the thing that we love. It might not even be a super powerful thing that you adopt. But you got to do it. You cannot bake a new engine formula in to last through most of the 2020 decade that is still pure internal combustion engine. So that's why I don't think fuel cell is going to be a thing anytime soon. But to your point, if IndyCar is willing to accept that the world around us is not purely thinking internal combustion engine, I'm hoping that they will start to think about this fuel cell side as well. Rob Ball says, Marshall, during a doubleheader weekend, like IMSA and IndyCar at Long Beach, how is your workload for the weekend compared to a standalone event? Uh, do you give one series priority over the other, or is it just a case of trying to get as many interviews and news items done as possible? He said, I was thinking about the short time between IndyCar qualifying and qualifying in the IMSA race you go and find the IndyCar drivers, get their take on things, etc. cetera? Um, well, thanks for the question, Rob. I'll answer it quickly. So Long Beach can be an absolute monster of a weekend. It tends to be just about the busiest one of the year for me. At times in the past, I have covered it solo and tried to in this. So this was even back to the ALMS days. And so trying to cover both. And maybe at times, no joke, throwing in some world challenge, which was there. Yeah, it's just a grind, just a pure production grind. And so depending on the workload or what was asked, a lot of it would just be sitting in the media center, which isn't a lot of fun and writing session reports and trying to sneak out between and get an interview here, do a little sidebar, a little feature on something, a little video, shoot some photos, whatever. Way that we've done things at racer in recent years has been pretty good since racers based in Southern California is we will have someone like racer.com's editor, Mark Lindenning, who used to cover IndyCar full time. Uh, And since sports cars tends to be a highly specialized thing to cover, there's so many stupid little nuances that if you don't grasp at all, it makes no sense for the most part. So going into Long Beach, just said to Mark, hey, brother, you handle IndyCar coverage. I'll take care of IMSA and fill in with some end of day videos with either Robin or Sebastian on IndyCar slash IMSA and any other little sidebars that come to mind. And that's basically what I did. But I do recall one year, I think it was 2013 maybe, where I was had some sort of fever coming into the race. Maybe Long Beach, I should just stop going. Seems like I always get sick or there's some sort of illness surrounding the joint for me. But I had some sort of ugly flu coming into the race. Um, I think David Malsher, who was then the editor of racer.com, he was there, maybe, not there. I remember sending a really nasty email uh, that went something along the lines of, Hi, racer folks and friends, Uh, this is our home race. I am here. I'm here to cover. Why am I the only person here to cover? We have a lot of things to cover. Sports cars, open wheel, two series of sports cars, open wheel, you name it. Where is the help? And so I think with that little nod, folks descended and helped and took the load off and things went super, super well. So probably, actually you shouldn't say probably, 100% my fault going into the weekend, uh, which would have been my first, I believe, weekend with, racer maybe it was 2014 i'm not sure when uh but entirely my fault for not arranging things ahead of time saying what i needed what we needed and orchestrating from that i mean i used to be a, a team manager so yet again proof as to why i'm no longer doing that job ed joris throws in another question here says if you were hpd why would you let alex rossi drive for penske and imsa could this turn out to be the blunder of all blunders well Keep in mind that it's not a let, it's actually a a sign HPD pays slash Acura pays Team Penske to run that program. It is theirs. They have hired Team Penske to facilitate their IMSA program on their behalf. The drivers, while a couple of them are absolutely Team Penske folks, everybody was signed off on by HPD to participate from the cockpit and with graham ray hall truly being too big to work and calling his own number at the end of the year saying all right guys i'm going to need to step out i just cannot drive this car the way that i need to because it's too fa- too small for me not a surprise that hpd said hey we got this guy <laughs> alexander rossi we think he's pretty darn good why don't we test him see how that works out and It was just an instant and immediate fit. So other than Scott Dixon, who obviously competes for Ganassi and then also races in Ganassi's Ford GT in IMSA, there are two primary drivers, Ed, that we all know Honda is looking to utilize whenever possible. One is Dixie. It's been that way for a while. The other one, which has become a thing in the last two years or so, is Rossi. One wasn't available. The other one was. Boom, here we go. To your underlying point, hey, As an HPD and Honda essentially introduced Team Penske to their potential future IndyCar star and driver by letting him become part of their organization at the endurance events uh, with the WeatherTech Championship rounds, you could look at it that way. I would say that even if he had never driven for the team, they would still be salivating at the thought of getting their hands on him once his contract expires at the end of the year with, and ready auto sport another thing that hope maybe we'll get into not today but probably in written form myself or robin is whether we could see chevy and honda really try and play a bigger role in driver retainment so that a situation like this won't happen Uh, if simon pagino for example were to depart penske for Rossi, one of the big possibilities is for Simon to go back to the team that he really helped elevate to contender status, that being what we now call Schmidt peterson Motorsports. That'd be great for aerosmith PM. Be great for Honda. Wouldn't be great for Chevy. Chevy does not have enough championship contenders in their stable. Could Chevrolet say, hey, Simon Paginot, you might be contracted to drive for Roger Penske right now, but we want to put you under a personal services contract for X amount of years so that if, and by chance, you and Penske part ways, we still have you in the family. We can, in theory, since we're paying your retainer, move you to a, pick the team name, Ed Carpenter Racing, so on and so forth, and make them a stronger competitor a carlin a i don't think there would be many chevy teams that aren't team penske that would refuse having a simon pagino uh, especially if it wouldn't cost them if they'd cost them nothing or very little we've heard this idea floated uh, by honda i shouldn't say honda about honda possibly holding on to someone like a rossi like a dixon name a few others that they would not want to fall into enemy hands. So it wouldn't surprise me if these conversations at least have taken place and could lead to something. So we will see. Let's see. Let's go to Andy Brumbaugh, who says, to your best guess is the financial package for the current TV deal better than the last one. Will there be any bump for the leader circle members or any kind of financial increase from the series to the teams? Haven't heard of anything, Andy. Have not heard of anything on this front. Definitely something for me to inquire about next time I get to sit down with some of IndyCar's leadership. Go to our pal Jameen Tuttle, who says, Good call on the improvement of the Carlin team. It really shows with an actual driver. Nothing against Chilton, but there are many better hunger drivers who deserve that seat. I know it's money-related, but he's a weak link. We've got another question here, so I'll start with the first. I hear you. Max does, from time to time, remind us that he has significant talent. Not championship-winning talent, but someone who certainly belongs and can compete for a meaningful position. The thing I fear, since Max's father, Chili Chilton, is the financial engine behind Carlin Racing, is whether it's too much negativity in print, online, on air, you name it. Whether it's just taking a beating from Pato, which hasn't happened at every session, which has been a nice thing to see, honestly. But if he is just pummeled in ways that Charlie Kimball can't, nothing, not saying anything negative against Charlie, but we're fairly convinced Pato is a very unique, unique talent. If Max ends up getting pummeled, throughout the year when he's sitting next to pato i do have concerns Jameen, I mean that there might come a point where he says hey man i've got an awesome life uh, money is not an issue i have a wonderful wife i have i can lead a life of happiness and free choices why do i need to keep showing up here and getting my butt handed to me by my teammate?" So I hope he responds. I hope that there is something inside Max that is really angry and really determined to not let that be the case. Because I think that guy, I think that guy is the one who at times has impressed me and hopefully impressed all of you. We just don't see that guy very often. So we'll see if he responds to Pato and the heat that kid brings. And if he doesn't, if the rest of the year is just kind of sort of fiddle farting around 15th 12th on a good day 19th others by and large not even knowing he was in the race although the car looks beautiful this year that's my concern when the driver whose father is the primary backer of the team might lose interest i'm not saying that max's father would but I'm just more concerned that could max a bad a really bad year for Max and possible losing interest cuz he's had a he hasn't had a many stellar years in IndyCar. Could that actually take security away from Carlin's long-term future? Uh Jermaine also says on another note, what is up with Ed Carpenter Racing? Piggott has had some bad luck, but overall a rough start to the season. The loss of Fuzzy's money has maybe hurt their R&D. Not 100% sure there. It's been a question for me as well. I think some of the issues Ed Jones has faced, I mean, he was running well at St. Pete, then crashed, then partially broke a finger, uh, set him back a little bit. I don't know if that, I mean, momentum's a thing, but not really a thing. I don't know if that's momentum that has ended up hurting and setting them back a little bit, but there's just been some inconsistency there. Uh, They do have a new engineer in the group. Uh, after Alan McDonald left, who's moved over to Graham Rahal's car. Graham's having a really strong start to the season. Could there be something there, Jameen? Probably. Always an adjustment period when you lose a veteran engineer and have to learn how to work with a new one, uh, especially one coming in, I believe, from NASCAR, who or has been in NASCAR most recently. We'll see. Spencer... I still think that kid's really good. I just don't know what... It can't all be bad luck, right? I think that kid does have something special and can be special. I, like you, I don't have the answer as to why we don't see more of it. I'm not sure that ECR made that same leap as the others in terms of off-season development, as you mentioned. I don't know if the fuzzies money naturally took a big hit on the R and D side. I genuinely don't know. There's something though, where they need need to rally back. Uh, we would expect them to be quick at Indy. Obviously the ovals, that is an ECR specialty. We've known, you know, we all know that with so few ovals on the calendar though, I would hope the team has not over prioritized ovals with their R and D budget. Uh, to the detriment of the what thirteen of the seventeen fourteen of the seventeen whatever the number is vast majority of the season that is not oval based. Let's see where else shall we go? Simon Rafi says, "Will the next generation of IndyCar be open to tender, or will IndyCar just ask Delar to come up with something?" Another question that I need to pose kind of got into this a little bit with jay fry at long beach and that's part of a discussion we need to continue will i be surprised simon will anybody be surprised if Delara is named the manufacturer of the next indycar not at all i've also heard some interesting things haven't been able to confirm them or spend any time with it that Delara might have some other production stuff happening i don't know if that's complete bs don't know if it's accurate not related to indycar so we need to dive into that a little bit. And if some of the non-IndyCar things do develop on their end, might actually give IndyCar reason to look a little bit wider to see if there are other suppliers that could fill that void. Let's go to Robert Northway, who says, what are your thoughts and feelings with regards to doubleheader weekends like Belle Isle and other rounds in the past? Would you like to see more of them? He then says, hashtag me personally, Thank you, Robert. Robert knows that I hate the phrase me personally or I personally because it's a redundancy. It's one and the same thing. Uh, Hashtag me personally. That's the one thing I love about Australian supercars. Have qualifying in the morning, race in the afternoon, both Saturday and Sunday. makes for great weekends and great viewing. Also would be more bang for the buck for sponsors. Having covered, I think it was 2013, Robert, which was the first season under former CEO Randy Bernard's doubleheader concept, where what we did that at Toronto, I think was the first one, I think. Or was it Belle Isle in Detroit? I don't remember. But anyways, we had Detroit, Toronto, and Houston. It was interesting. I don't know if I saw the crowds turn out that made anyone say, oh, boy, this is an absolute home run. I do, I like the idea of giving folks more. So I'm certainly not against that at all. My guess, purely a guess, uneducated one at that, Robert, is TV. Is this something where it could be featured both Saturday and Sunday in meaningful time slots that would give IndyCar a better chance of generating bigger numbers? If so, that might be the thing. Coming back to the bang for the buck for sponsors. I don't believe teams particularly love it, especially if we're talking more or less two full distance races. It's one thing if you say, "Yeah, we're going to do if the race at track X is a hundred laps normally." I don't think doing a fifty lapper on Saturday and a fifty lapper on Sunday works because it'd be a pretty short thing. But if we're talking seventy five to eighty for both, without completely wearing out the car, wearing out the drivers, mileaging parts left and right and engines think there could be something for them to consider at least so far though since the concept was abandoned barring detroit where detroit said hey we want this this we'd make this us if you want it to go away elsewhere cool but keep us i haven't heard anything about trying to do that again at toronto never really heard about it as an option for long beach so since we are not overflowing with street courses right now Really, I don't, it could be a concept for the future. I would also say, uh, to close on this topic, Robert, speaking of your beloved Aussie supercars, my beloved Aussie supercars, if IndyCar does go back down on and we do head to Surfer's Paradise or wherever else, I think this would be the perfect format. Uh, if it's going to be a flyaway thing, if it's going to be most likely a non-points event, absolutely, wear people out. We're already going to be worn out going to be dealing with a 17 hour time difference and wanting to sleep all we should be awake and vice versa so we're already going to be knocked out what i mean why not just make it a little bit more difficult that could be fun so i do like the idea but if there's a genuine value that we believe strongly believe can be returned for sponsors via a very very high quality rating for the event uh, nielsen rating Let's do it. Let's think about it, at least. Mike Lengel says, Marshall, why doesn't Honda support the Road to Indy series? Yet they do support Formula 3 and Formula 4 in the SCCA. Interesting topic here, Mike. There have been overtures made, inquiries made, um, offers tendered over the years by Honda to support the Road to Indy. One thing that they weren't willing to do in the past uh, to anything even close to the level being offered by Mazda, which did win the tender and held it uh, through the end of last year, was the advancement prizes. The We're going to put up lots and lots of money so the champion from each of the three series gets a free ride when they win the USF 2000 free season in what we now call Indy Pro 2000, Indy Pro 2000 champ would then get free ride, fully paid season in Indy Lights. And coming out of Indy Lights, both Mazda and IndyCar and Anderson Promotions, I believe IndyCar uh, actually was also a pretty significant contributor to the million plus dollars coming out of Indy Lights for the champ there to do the four races plus the Indy 500. So everything that I heard, and I think it's fairly accurate, was Honda was absolutely down with providing motors hpd is a for-profit business selling motors servicing them that's something that would make great sense to do that on all three levels just was not the interest to then also put more than a million dollars i think mazda was spending something like two million a year or so between the advancements for the champions they also had some things with an open wheel shootout um, where that money would allow a kid to get into USF 2000 full season. I believe there was another one for kind of a karting advancement. So you put all that together on top of the engine supply. There's also about 2 million a year they're willing to commit to. And I believe that was just the, uh, the point that Honda was not willing to do. So if we look at their support in the SCCA pro racing ranks with F3 and F4, we do see the, engine supply stuff, which is good for them. And I know that they do provide some financial assistance uh, for some things, but it's not a big blanket advancement. So could that change? Could we have Honda powering the road to IndyCars cars in the future? Hopefully. Uh, who, whichever brand does it, i would just say that making sure that the advancement money is there. We've seen how critical it is to careers. The thought of that going away scares me. Corey Matthews says, when did prep start for the 2019 Indy 500? How early due to rule changes uh, coming in? Are you needed in order to start the build? Or are the things you wait on to see how it races first? I mean, most teams will tell you it starts the day after the 500. It's a great line. It's not accurate, but at least note-taking thoughts of things to change, improve, or otherwise happens. But really, this does begin more often than not during the off-season, Corey where you have your Speedway chassis, mainly from a body fit, cleaning up standpoint. It does start very early, but then obviously you have to see, oh, there's going to be a front wing change. There's going to be a few other changes that are passed down, and those require adaptation. But what you don't do is have teams wait until, well, I would hope, they aren't waiting until January or February to begin this process. So uh, at least the formative stuff, yeah, Uh, It starts, depending on the team, how much time they have, how many dedicated employees they have, whether they're able to set aside an indie only slash Speedway vehicle. It would definitely start in the months following the 500, uh, and probably not much later than that, but it would not be a full-time, everyday thing. David Trudy asks, As Roger Penske ages, what is known, or is there a succession plan for Penske Racing to continue? Great question, Dave. Sensitive one. I have heard that there is, yes, indeed, a secession plan. Would be lying if I said I had any major insights about it, but I know that Roger's son, Roger Jr., uh, between Roger and Tim Sindrick and some of the management folks on the NASCAR side, I believe that if and when Roger decides... It is time to step down from the timing stand that the team will indeed move forward and continue without the captain uh, being a regular presence. Certainly a concern if that were to, if Roger's decision to step away would lead to the team stepping away. Yeah. I actually, and this is just trying, well, it's not blowing smoke, it's honest. I really really enjoy Roger of the many things that I take pride in, in life. The fact that he and I have built a really solid relationship, friendship, personal um, one where I can call him. He can call me. uh, We can trust one another. It's pretty cool. And so just as the guy who grew up loving racing, never knowing that he would be a part of it, looking at Roger and idolizing what he had done, even back then in the late seventies, early eighties as a team owner, still very surreal for me, Dave, to know that I get to go to the track and not just see Roger and not just talk to Roger, but know that uh, we can actually have a pretty cool relationship and do some pretty cool things together, working on a project right now that'll come out in the month of May that I'm hoping you will enjoy uh, all courtesy of Roger saying yes to that. So anyways, it would suck if RP wasn't there because he's, uh, he's a blast. He really is. Let's go to our pal, Jerry Sudath. Hey, Jerry, hopefully I'll see you here at the Mid-Ohio Imps Around. Says, the recent talk of bumping makes me curious as to whether you have any favorite stories from bump days. I did mention mentioned that early in the show about the my first year there in 97, don't know if it was straight up bumping. My brain is farting a little bit yet again, but it would have been 1999. And although I loved the team, the team was amazing. Uh, just a great little Goliath, or David among Goliaths, I guess, with the LP Racing Neenhouse team. And we had LSA Salazar as our driver. And he's not someone that history has remembered so fondly as one of the uh, drivers possessing an excess of talent. But I enjoyed the guy. Didn't think he was a bad guy at all. Uh, Definitely not as he'd been painted. Uh, Any thoughts that I'd heard about who he was, what he was about coming in, I thought, oh man, this is going to be bad. Wasn't that guy at all? Was very surprised. What had happened, though, is he had been involved in a hellacious crash, I believe the year before, 98, at Dover. Broke himself in half. Just brutal. And so coming back in 99, again, uh, if it was 97 where he crashed, I I forget exactly. But coming back in 99, we had someone who was barely healed physically, and there had been almost zero repairs mentally. That crash shook him like you wouldn't believe, as it would shake all of us to the core. Failed to qualify at the first race. I mean, this is... This tells you the story. Jer failed to qualify at Walt Disney World. Didn't make the show for first race back. It was it was not pretty. Got to Indy. I am forgetting off the top of my head. I'm sure I could look it up quickly, but it's not that important. I don't remember where we qualified. Might have been thirty third. I think we might have qualified thirty third last. So I do recall there being a little bit of heat in terms of bumping and not getting in. So, yeah, again, when I tell you guys that I was good at what I did, but, you know, greatness was not exactly a hallmark following me around. Although I worked with some excellent people and some excellent teams that were not known, big-name teams, but just being inside, seeing that, hey, there's some real talent and quality here. You know, some of them were smaller teams, so barely making the show in 97 barely making the show in 99. Yeah. It's part of my little IndyCar story. Regardless, I do recall there being some sweats about not making it with LSA and getting bumped. And again, I don't remember 30th, 31st, 32nd, 33rd, somewhere in there, there was a little bit of heat. He just wasn't in it. Wasn't into it. Uh, his heart wasn't in it. He was still needing, needing time. And so it was there because that's how he made his living. And so it was purely out of necessity and you, it was the classic case of phoning it in and he phoned it in just enough to scrape into the field. Then, and again, if I remember how this worked exactly, it was just, it was the Lord telling us, all right, you got in the show, you're going to get your guaranteed 250 grand or whatever it is, minimum start money. Let's just go home. Uh, I believe he just spun on his own in the short shoot between turns one and two I don't remember what lap, but very early in the race. I don't think we'd even done a pit stop yet. And I don't know, uh, smashed up the front suspension or rear suspension. It was just one of those things where you go, okay, this has ended the way it should have. We were very fortunate to get in, barely had enough speed to qualify. And just for whatever reason, I assume who knows, I I wouldn't claim it was intentional, but it looked like a very unnecessary spin, an odd one. Hit the wall lightly, and we packed up, went home. So started last, first car out. Woohoo! Yeah, that was, uh, yeah. Part of my little story, Jer. Like I said, I wish it was started on the pole and won the dang thing. Keep in mind that there are a lot of crew members in IndyCar. At least half of them have really great stories to speak about their success. Then there's the rest of us. Let's see, Don Gregory, when will we get to hear about the epic saga that was Vince Neal's racing career? Actually, I moved that. Hopefully you'll be happy to hear Don. I moved that podcast into my waiting for production folder. And so I have that and I actually am pardon me. I'm going to take a moment here to look in that folder and tell you how many things I've moved into that specifically for stuff I need to get ready for the month of May uh, let's see. Da, da, da. All right. I got a little bit of work to do here. I am staring at 16 podcasts I have listed to get ready for the month of May that are actual little kind of features. Some of them are IMSA, most of them are IndyCar related, and that's not including the upcoming weekly shows that we do. And the Vince Neal, I was an Indy Lights driver. Including my interview with him, plus a little bit with Nikki Six. Yeah, looking forward to that. That should be fun. And Vince forwarded me a couple of photos to use with that too that I didn't have, or actually to go along with the ones that I shot back in the day. So, woohoo! All kinds of fun there. All right, we are winding down to the very end of the All MP week in IndyCar before I get on a plane podcast. And then I'm thinking what we're going to do. Is driver interest and time provided? Maybe we can do a short day at Indy as we did last year at Indy. Maybe we can do one of those at the end of the test. All right, gonna switch over, handle our last couple of questions that have been sent in on Reddit. Gonna grant, and I again, I love the screen names here, all of which I need explanations on, please. TKM 421. Do you think IndyCar will ever have multiple chassis manufacturers again? Not in my lifetime, unfortunately. One of those things where I hope to be proven wrong, but I just cannot imagine a time where that would happen. Only scenario where I think it would is if we have, I'd say, four engine manufacturers. And you start dealing with a significant number of auto manufacturers. That's when you start to hear more and more about, I want customization. I want my own thing. Uh, I want to be able to put my motor in a chassis that is more of my liking than the one you're telling me I have to. So if we can get out to four, maybe five, I think that becomes a real option. Let's see. Same question or another question from TKM421. Will IndyCar ever return to the UK? I hope. I'm probably going to use the same thing. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. I hope it will. But these things, will IndyCar go to Australia or the UK or Spain, Japan, Never a case of IndyCar deciding to go there. It's always a case of someone, a promoter, an uh, auto manufacturer, something saying, hey, here is an invitation that includes a fairly sizable check to cover all travel. Here's appearance money. Here are your hotels. It's millions and millions of dollars. So when IndyCar does say it's going to some sort of serious international destination, it's because that destination is paying for it. So it's strictly an an invite-only based process. Mysterious Pete Aaron, I Pete, says with April 22nd, that being yesterday, being actually, no, that's today. Sorry, a little bit drunk in the head. With today being the late Greg Moore's birthday, do you think we will ever see a driver dominate Indy Lights like he did when he won the championship? Or is that level of talent coming through the road of indie system deeper now, despite less than ideal numbers on the indie Lights grids? I mean, we did see last year that Pato won, what, half the races? Uh, Colton more or less won the majority of the others. Interesting. I think the way we're looking at Lights right now with the somewhat modestly sized grid, it's... Absolutely ripe for a Greg Moore type driver, someone who is better than the rest by a decent margin to do that. What I'm not seeing right now is a driver that is truly better than all the rest like that. I think we're going to see Oliver Askew and Renus VK do most of the winning this year. Robert McGinnis should be in there. Our man Zachary Clayman DeMello has already won one race. I think we should see him win another or two. I'm not seeing that kind of transcendent talent with Pato and Colton having left the series. I'm not seeing that one, oh my goodness, talent capable of doing that. Um, Right now, I'm not sure I see that driver in the Indy Pro 2000 category or USF 2000 yet, but yeah, there's always a chance, and that's kind of the cool thing. It's also not a mistake that, I mean, I was competing in Indy Lights at that time against Greg. There were some definite talents he was clearly the best of all. You saw what made him special there, and he then showed us when he, once he got into cart, absolute proof. What we saw in lights, 100% accurate, and that talent was amazing. Team wasn't always capable of delivering on that talent for him, but uh, he is a guy that had it, without a doubt. I think... As we look at Apato, we look at Colton, we say, you know, it still works that way. These two kids who distinguished themselves wasn't just beating up on the rest in lights and then, you eh, we'll fo- no, okay, maybe they're not all that good. No, they're showing us that special thing we witnessed in lights has indeed carried on. I don't know if we're going to see that. I don't know if and when we're going to see that in the next couple of years, though, on the road to Indy, uh, because I've yet to see a driver that makes me think, "Ooh, boy. This one's going to be special to that crazy high degree you mentioned. Uh, Jenico once says, in the racer.com article I wrote, you noted that Harding would want a million and a half to run their second car at Indy. That's the highest figure I've heard floated over the past few years by a couple hundred thousand dollars. King's ransom or reasonable asking price. That is the go-away price. That's the F you, I don't want to do it, but if you're willing to be that dumb and pay us that much, we'll take it from you price. So that's effectively the go-away price. Uh, And they could absolutely use that money, and that's the thing. Uh, Anything less than that, they more or less realized it's not going to do for us what we want or need it to. So if we can't get that much, too big of a hassle, and it's not actually going to benefit the 88 car in its budgeting needs for the rest of the year. Let's see. Got time for one or two more. I need a name, please. Again, I love Reddit. Back at St. Pete, Jay Fry alluded to two, quote, game-changer announcements coming up during Indy 500 activities in May. Is this still something that's supposed to happen? So part of what we do, some of what we do in the media, is share knowledge that we have whenever we want. And other times we need to sit on some things. And this is a case where I am absolutely hoping, dear, I need a name, please that those game changers do get announced. And I am very confident that if they are announced, at least one, if not both, all right, I'll be honest, there could be three. If any one of those three or all of the three are announced, it's going to be the best month of May ever. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it is going to be truly. I would say Jay is not understating the game changer Angle. So I have fingers and all sorts of appendages crossed. All right, let's go to our last question. This comes in from Momo Hater. I like Momo. Why don't you? Uh, How do any car teams show value to potential sponsors? I assume there has to be more than being seen on TV. I understand it's B2B, but what is that besides hospitality? I think I've cited this one before. B2B is... I mean, hospitality is a cool thing, but it's also the linkage of sponsors who do business together. Might be overstating some of the obvious here, but we talk about Andretti being the model, really the ones that pioneered this in IndyCar. It's uh, what one company looking to place its fruits and vegetables, I think more on the fruits, in 7-Eleven stores. And the deal that was done between the two of them to do that, uh, I think it might have there might have even included a delivery angle as well. So this could have tied two to three sponsors together at Andretti at the same time. So there's a big deal with the uh, food vendor to get their that fresh food, fresh vegetables. Uh, again, I think mostly in the form of apples and bananas and whatnot, and oranges on the little checkout counter into every 7-Eleven nationwide. Well, that's a big thing for them, huge distribution network. You then have, so that's a financial opportunity that's pretty massive. You then have the distribution company, the delivery company, that would then actually do the actual distribution to all those 7-Eleven stores. I mean, those are areas where on the distribution side and the actual uh, fruit and vegetable manufacturer, These are big deals that bring a lot of money to them. The team being the conduit for it, then reaps those benefits financially, whatever the percentage happens to be. So that's what's happening more and more and more. Again, not a surprise, nothing new, but it's not just hospitality, but where the hospitality part is really important is the connection. And hey, so at the next event, we're going to have the CEO from here and the CFO from there and the CMO from another company. And we're going to see if we can put you guys together to come up with something and you serve each other's various needs. And from being the conduit for that, the facilitator for that team, hopefully, is taking home millions of dollars. Then you come back to the original point here of Nielsen ratings. We're still in that thing. That's still the thing where for those that are truly paying for exposure, they are looking to that number. It hasn't been strong so far this year. Uh, that's been the that's been the one sad part of the 2019 season. So we're hoping that number improves. But yeah, bottom line is for those that are just paying for exposure, a more traditional sponsorship model. That's the thing they're looking for. All right, I need to finish packing and go to bed. So hoping, hoping. Don't want to promise, but hoping we will have a day at Indy episode to file. Wednesday, after we are done running, and beyond that, thanks for what is, I think, the second MP is the host and guest episode of The Week in IndyCar, presented to you by our awesome, awesome friends at Cooper Tires, at the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com.